All right, hello. We are in the, um, where are we in the sermon? We are nearing the end of the sermon series. Thanks, Dan. Um, we have been, we've been taking a look at Jesus, which is convenient for a Christian church to be doing. Um, but we've been trying to, as Terry put in the very first sermon, um, look at him anew. We've been trying to introduce ourselves to someone we've known for a long time. Um, some people, like my wife, I don't think there's been a moment that, of her life that she remembers when she didn't know him. Um, so this becomes, it's like an old house that you've inhabited for a long time. And we're trying to figure out how we can come into that house and look at it as something fresh. So what we've been doing is kind of looking in that dusty room and picking up each thing we find and blowing it off and taking a different look at different facets of who Jesus is to dive in and those things and try and draw out something fresh. Not something new, generally speaking, not something we haven't heard before, but just to bring it back to mind so that we might see the wonder of who Jesus is. Um, so we started kind of very high level. Um, if you remember, we started with basically who Jesus is in Jesus. We started with the incarnation and the Trinity, considering Jesus the second person of the Godhead and also how he's fully God and fully man. So when we speak of something about Jesus, we're talking about God as well. Uh, we also considered how he is the long prophesied Messiah. He was a promise fulfilled when he came. And then from there, we moved into a more vocational look at Jesus, considering Jesus as a prophet, um, as a priest, the one who came to atone for us, as a king who sits and reigns, as the good shepherd who leads us um, beside still waters. Um, and then we moved from there into a more relational look at Jesus. We considered him as the one who heals us, who draws us in to work out that healing alongside of him. And we consider him as a brother and as a friend. Um, in all, we've painted a, hopefully, painted a fascinating picture of this man. Um, somebody who just had a few of those traits would be marvelous. But what we've been trying to present is all of those traits in a single person. Um, but we run into a challenge in that we say this is who Jesus is, but um, a lot of the world isn't interested. Um, and it's not necessarily simply because they don't believe that's who Jesus is. You can run into people who don't want to believe. Even if they see all of this is who Jesus is, there's still a resistance to him. Uh, and the question is why? If he is all of these things, what prevents that from going forward? And... As Christians, in some ways, we are the worst people to identify that challenge because by definition, we are fond of Jesus. Um, it's like I have lots of faults, and my wife probably knows those faults better than any of you, but she is probably the worst positioned person to tell you why somebody might hate me because even if they see a bunch of negative things about me, she can always go, yeah, but he's Brian. So even if we could see some negative things about Jesus, we are kind of like, yeah, but he's Jesus. And you can see in the way we would use a phrase when you consider, like, what do the people, the biggest thing people dislike about Christianity as Christians, it has a, we like to pull it away from Jesus and make it so that it's not him, it's us. That we present him poorly, and to a large degree, that's true. We, are, we can be self-righteous. Our sin gets in the way of us giving a clear image of who Jesus is, and we can push many people off simply in the way we are from Jesus. That is a true, that it's true, and it's something we need to consistently be working to address, to better represent who Jesus is. That said, 
There was a time when Jesus walks unmediated. He walked among men without anybody else to try and present him to these people. They could see him, they could talk to him, they could hear his voice directly. This man who we say is God come in the flesh, who we know is this priest who's come to atone for sin, a man who came casting out demons, who came healing the sick, proclaiming God's glory, who came to feed the sick, this man walked and presented himself to the world. And he was rejected and killed. So there is something in Jesus himself that drives people to murder. And the question is, who does that and why? What is it about Jesus that drives people away? Why was Jesus killed? Now, at one level, again, we can be, Christians can be the worst people to do this because we sometimes want to skip directly to the end. We know why he was killed. He died for our sins. It's like we come to the water, we just skip our stone, cross the surface of the narrative, nice and smooth, never getting too wet till it gets to the other side. And it is true, Jesus came to die for our sins. He was killed in accordance with the purposes and plans of God. But the Bible treats divine and human causality in a way that we don't always like sometimes. It's fully comfortable saying this is 100% God's doing and also saying there are human actors that actually pulled out the wickedness here. You can see it in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. God sent Joseph. He had his brothers sell him into slavery so that he would go ahead of them into Egypt to establish himself there that he might save that family from the famine. But we shouldn't then imagine God as like the cosmic puppeteer making the brothers um, sell him into slavery. We can see if we look at that story, the reason they sold him into slavery. They would rather endure the guilt of his probable death and the sorrow of their father losing their beloved son because he was so insufferable to them. They would rather deal with all of that than spend one more day. So we can say God sent him, but we can still look and see a 100% human cause, a natural cause, something in the created order that actually brings these things about. And we can do the same thing when we consider the story of Jesus. So the question I want to ask is who killed Jesus and why? It's a very uplifting sermon this week. Um, now our first option, it's like a murder mystery, is the first person we come into contact with um, in the story who opposes Jesus. Um, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, and it's a common pattern, right after Jesus is baptized, right before he starts his ministry, he goes into the wilderness and he's confronted with Satan. Satan comes to him and tries to tempt him. Um, Satan, to some extent, knows his place. He doesn't attack Jesus outright. And from the impression we get from the rest of the story, he wouldn't have been successful if he tried. So what he does is what he always does. He comes and he tries to undermine and to tempt and to draw away. He tries to present options that will take Jesus off of his path and away from the Father. This is his MO. This is what he does. In a lot of ways, Satan knows his place better than we know his place. He knows he has no chance of a frontal assault on God. So when God creates the world and sets stewards in power, Satan cannot overthrow God to take it over. Instead, he comes to the stewards, to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them to sin. And through that sin, 
he drives a divide between them and God. And now he has two great weapons. He has death and he has sin. And he can, from this point on, continuously play off humankind by enticing them to sin. And then as soon as they sin, he flips the script and he reminds them of how far they are from God and that death is their sure way. So he says, you can't go back to God. You're stuck with me. Let's make this work as well as possible. And he has managed to maintain a kingdom through that power. But he knows that this kingdom has an expiration date. Right after Adam and Eve fall, God foretells his decline. He says that Satan, by the seed of a woman, by a son of man, his head will be crushed, that his power will be broken. And Satan, again, in some ways knows God better than us. He knows that what God has said, God will do. So he awaits for this. And we get a picture of the large scaleness of this waiting uh, in the book of Revelation, which this is in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And this is Israel. This is the true Israel, 12 stars representing the 12 tribes. This is Israel that's appearing in this vision to John. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains on the agony of giving birth. And there appeared in the he- another, and then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. And we will read a little further if we keep going that this dragon is Satan. With seven heads and ten horns on his head, and on his head seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she she had a place prepared for her by God. We see Satan here anticipating the birth of the child that will bring about his downfall. He sits ready for the child to be born so that he might devour it before it brings him to ruin. And the great thing about this story, and it's something that's common in Revelation, is you get this great buildup to a battle, and then the battle just gets skipped and you go to the end. It's like God's basically showing us these battles are so minor and insignificant in how it actually plays out that it's, it, the entire life and ministry and victory of Jesus shows up in a comma in that sentence. It skips from his birth to him ascending to the throne. And Terry's going to talk next week about that victory. But what I consider now is that that waiting for it, that Satan sat there anticipating the birth of the one who was to bring us downfall, and he sat there to destroy him before he could do it. But when we read the story of Jesus' actual birth, we don't find description of this little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork ready to stab a baby with it. It's probably a little dark, sorry. Um, Instead, we do find someone that goes to try and kill the baby Jesus. Herod, a king of humans, finds his kingdom threatened. He finds that there's supposed to be a king of the Jews, and currently he is to be the king of Israel. So he sees that this person is supposed to be rising that might challenge him. So he sends his soldiers to the city where the child was born to kill 
all the children born around that time. And just to be safe, he has them kill within a two-year window just to make sure none of them get out. Fortunately for our story, Jesus had escaped to Egypt because of a dream given to his father. But the point is you have a human king who feels his, his kingdom's threatened and he goes to kill the boy. We see Satan working to devour the boy before he's born through a human actor. He has a partner in this story. And this is again common to Satan. Jesus refers to Satan as a murderer from the beginning. But when we read the story, we, don't, we oddly don't see him murdering anybody, at least not directly. Adam and Eve fall due to his temptation and bring death into the world. He brings death that way. He also then, and the next thing that happens is he tempts Cain to kill Abel. He has Adam and Eve's firstborn son kill their second. And he again has blood on his hands, even though he's not the one found holding the rock in the field. Satan is a murderer who works alongside human accomplices. And that again holds at the cross. Whatever Satan's hand in trying to, in bringing that about, and it says that he tempted Judas, that he enters Judas to go betray him. He has a hand in what is happening, but we don't have a picture of him taking on earthly form to put Jesus upon the cross. He has partners in this. So we, while we do see a guilty party in Satan who is coming against Jesus because his kingdom is threatened, he does not act alone. And this matches with Jesus' description of the situation as well. And a very solid piece of evidence about who kills Jesus, Jesus himself says in uh, chapter 10 of Mark, in verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So we find Satan's accomplices in all this. The dragon had a human party that he was working alongside of. He had two broad parties, the Jewish leadership over Israel at the time and the Gentile leadership being the Romans who were in power. So we have the guilty party, but the question is why? Why did they kill Jesus? That's the more important question. It's actually kind of easy to pinpoint who did it. He died upon a cross that tells you who was there, but why did they kill Jesus? The official answer, if you were to go back the way you could now and you want to find out why somebody died, you go back and you read the trial transcripts. You can see what does the trial say? What was he convicted of? And the answer is they convicted him of blasphemy. They accused him of blasphemy, and that was why the Jewish leadership took him to Pilate because they couldn't kill him. So they bring Pilate alongside to actually, the Romans, to actually execute him. But the reason the Jewish trial convicted him was blasphemy. He claimed to be the Messiah. He said he was the son of God, the one sent by God according to the promises that Terry covered so many weeks ago. He came to do that. He came to bring about God's kingdom and power. But there's a catch here. He's sitting captured and deserted, which is what Messiahs don't do. So if they get a guy here who will say, I'm the Messiah, and they can look at him going, but you're captured and now caught by us and going to be destroyed, it's clearly not the same person. This is a blasphemer who's taking God's name in vain and claiming something as a false prophet that he cannot. So they have their evidence there to kill him. 
The problem is that's the official reason, but oftentimes, as we know, the official reason is not actually why something happened. If we look at chapter 14 at the start of the trial, um, in verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They started this trial knowing what the verdict was going to be. They came into that room having arrested him to put him to death. They are trying to find people who can line up a testimony good enough that they can have an official checkbox to kill him. They can't do it. They get more and more frustrated, and finally the high priest stands up and says, are you the Messiah? And he goes, I am, and that was enough for them. But the challenge was them trying to actually get an official good trial to happen. But you can see it was an illegitimate trial from the start because they knew what the verdict was going to be. No matter how well they checked off the boxes as they went, the whole thing was on shaky grounds because they knew he was guilty in their minds from the start. They already wanted to kill him before they did their inquiry. So why? We have to go back to the third chapter, all the way to the beginning of Jesus' ministry to find the first time they say they want to kill him. Jesus, it's on a Sunday. He walks into the temple, and he sees a man with a withered hand. So it's on the Sabbath. Sorry, it's on the Saturday. So he sees a man with a withered hand. And they look at Jesus to see what he's going to do because they're trying to find a reason to accuse him. They want to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? And it says, Jesus looks at the hardness of heart and he's angered and then he reaches out, he questions them, but then he heals the man. And then we read in uh, chapter three, verse six, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. What we have here is we have the Pharisees and Herodians. Without going into too much depth, you have two fairly opposing parties who don't generally see eye to eye on what should be happening. And all of a sudden, they have agreed on one thing. Jesus needs to be done with. Up until this story, they've largely seen Jesus healing. He's been casting out demons. He's been... Um, healing and casting out demons is mostly what he's been doing. And they have already decided they want to kill him. What prompts people that quickly? I mean, that escalates very fast in Mark. It's basically, story starts, they want to kill him. What drives that? Now, we could go back through all their interactions and slowly piece together a picture of what might be driving it. But as with the chapter in Revelation 12, Jesus does us a favor of giving us the answer. It's the passage that Shelley read earlier, the parable of the tenants. In this, you have a story. It takes place when they're questioning Jesus' authority. The religious leaders are coming to Jesus and asking, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And he asks a question that silences them. And then he goes on to tell a parable. He tells a parable about a person who's planted a vineyard, and he goes away. And he has people who are tending to the vineyard for him, and he sends people to him, servants, to try and get the, vineyard, the fruit of the vineyard. And they see them, and they beat them, and they kill them, and they send them away. And finally, he says, I'll send my son. They'll respect this one. And they see the son, and their response is, this is the heir. If we kill him, this is ours. So they kill him, and they cast him out of the city. And it says, they knew he told this against them.
they have a similar concern to Satan. When Satan looked for a bedfellow to hop in with to kill Jesus, he didn't have to find somebody with a really different motive. He found somebody else whose kingdom was threatened. He found somebody else whose authority was threatened. When Jesus comes forgiving sins, the, it threatens the authority of the system they are upholding. When he comes eating and doing things on the Sabbath, it threatens the authority of the system they have been put in charge of upholding. When he comes teaching with authority, it threatens the authority of their teaching. And this actually is where you can't have sympathy with them because at some level, that is their job. They have been put in a position where they are supposed to watch out for these things. They are supposed to ensure worship of God happens in a way that God is desiring. They've been put in place of upholding his law, which contains things on the Sabbath. They have been given a position of authority in teaching. The problem is they have become so enamored with that authority, so caught up in how it works, that when the source of the authority stands right in front of them, they feel threatened they're going to lose their position. And this was something that was, I mean, it was highly convicting to me as a leader in the church. Terry and I, we have a position where we really have been put in a spot of watching out for stuff in this church. But it is, we have to watch that it doesn't become about our authority that we can't become so enamored with things happening the way we would like them to do, that if God tries to do something, we will position ourselves to stop it. And this is true for everyone in authority, from a CEO down to a parent. A CEO has a real job of casting a vision for a company and keeping things and watching over this whole structure. But if they become so enamored with their position that it becomes greater to them than actually watching after the good of the company, they have defaulted in their job. Similar with a parent who has authority over children. I mean, children need authority. My children would both be dead, honestly, if we didn't have authority over them. They are little idiots. <laughs> yes, they would have, probably three times a day. But if the authority we've been given as parents comes to take a place where it becomes about sculpting them into my vision of what their life should be, not God's vision, not what he intends for them, it becomes about me and me trying to fulfill my dreams for who they should be, I have overstepped my role as a parent. I have let the authority that God has truly vested in me become about my little kingdom and these things following my lines. And that's what we see in the Jewish leaders of this time. No idea where I am. So when Satan comes to them, when he starts to pull the strings behind the way, he finds people who are working in the same grooves. These are people who know because they sit on top of a kingdom. Consider Jesus has come to turn kingdoms upside down. The people on top are sometimes going to end up on the bottom. People who have things that they really like about the way things run right now will find them turned upside down. And we all need to be in a place where we will hold those things lightly. We all benefit in different ways from unrighteous systems. And we need to hold them loosely enough that if those systems were, we should desire those systems being toppled, even if it means we live in a slightly less plush environment. John the Baptist had the right attitude about this whole thing. He had a position of authority as a prophet of God, and his response to Jesus' coming was, I will diminish so that he might rise. 
That is the position we have to take. If we don't take that position, we stand in the same position here. Which brings us to the third party. We definitely have Satan's hand on that hammer. We definitely have the ruling human power's hand on that hammer that drove the nail into Jesus. But there's a third hand there as well. There's only one person in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus directly ascribes Satan to. And it's not one of the people who's part of the conspiracy. It's not even Judas. It's Peter, one of his disciples. He has come to announce. Peter, Jesus starts to tell for the first time what's truly going to happen. He tells a version of what I read in chapter 10 that he is going to be arrested and killed and that he'll rise. Right after they recognize him as the Messiah, this is what he tells them. And Peter's response is, that's not what's going to happen. And Jesus sees this, and what he, he turns to Peter, and he rebukes him in front of everybody, mostly because he knows this is the mindset they all have, and he needs to make it clear what's wrong with this. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you've set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. He calls Peter out directly because Peter is stuck with the same mindset the people who will eventually kill Jesus has. He has an image of what is supposed to happen. He knows how the Messiah is supposed to work. He knows the power he is supposed to set up. He is supposed to come as a triumphant king. He has the same mindset that uh, Satan uses to tempt Jesus. He comes to him, and he's basically saying, this path of death, that's not the way. There is a better way for you to become the Messiah, for you to fulfill the calling that you were supposed to have. This is the ways of man. He has a similar view of how this kingdom is supposed to work. He knows how this world is. And Jesus calls out the depths of the cost of Peter's thinking. He highlights that even if you were to gain the whole world, if Peter was right and there was a way for him to come and really have all the worldly power through the way that Peter thinks it's supposed to happen, that they will ride into Jerusalem triumphant, that the Romans will just fall by their sides, that Jesus will ascend to that throne, and Peter and whoever Peter thinks will be the third person, they'll sit by the sides of Jesus ruling forever. Even if they were to gain the whole world, but forfeit their soul, which is what they would be doing if they went against the path of God for this, it would have done them no good. They would have lost everything. That's what Peter's pushing for when he pushes for Jesus to go a different path. It is to gain something while forfeiting everything. It is the path of power and a setting up of kingdoms outside of God's kingdom. Jesus said elsewhere that a man can't serve two rulers. He said it in context of money, but it still applies here. Peter is trying to do two things. He really is a follower of Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus down this path of, as the Messiah of God, submitted to God's kingdom and seeing God's kingdom happen. But he has something else in his mind that he's still trying to serve, a vision of power and a vision of how things are going to go. And what Jesus is telling us here with you can't serve two kingdoms, kings, that eventually you will love the one and hate the other. He's saying eventually there's a fork in the road. You come to a point where if you serve this, you're going to want this one dead. 
And that is the third accomplice to this murder of Jesus that we have within each one of us. There is a spot in us when all the rival kingdoms that we want to place within us, those things, there is a fleshly nature within us that would have Jesus dead. Rather than see our own kingdoms toppled, rather than see portions of our life come out in a way we don't desire, would have him removed from the equation. And we need to stare that in the face. We need to look it down, and we are, in this case, a people positioned to do that. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 130. And it talks, and there's a verse in there that says, because we are forgiven, you can be feared, or something like that. It basically is saying, because we have been forgiven by you, God, we can fear you. Because we know that our sins are no longer held into account, we can look at how holy you are. We can do it without blinking because we know we've been forgiven everything. We don't need to bring God down in any manner. We don't need to try and whitewash any of the sin within us. Try and pretend like it's not there. Try and make it okay so that we can be okay with God because the truth is he has covered all of that. So we can stare fully at the filthiness of ourselves and the holiness of him and not do it from a spot of terror, but we can do it in awe and reverence, in humility. And we have to do this. Jesus will not let us pretend like the entire problem is out there. We will miss out on the fact that, generally speaking, when God moves forward, he starts by cleaning his own house first. And we will continue, if we do that, to present that bad image of Jesus, the hypocritical one shaped by sin, shaped by self-righteousness. So we have to face up to this. There's a painting by Rembrandt. Um, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's a picture of them raising the cross. And it's done in, I love Rembrandt's painting, so it's done in the traditional style. It's got the really dark and then the bright lights on Jesus' body. But then there, right at Jesus' feet, there's a man in a blue painter's turban. Amongst the people who are rising up pulling Jesus' body up to his death, Rembrandt painted himself in, looking straight out, dead center in the screen. And there's a truth to that. Within each one of us lies something that would have Jesus cast out, that we need to address and be dealing with on a constant basis. So in summary, who killed Jesus? There were three groups at play. There was Satan and his demons working at a very high level. There was the earthly powers who brought it about and actually executed it, executed the execution grade. And you have the individual sin that dwells within each one of us that would want to see him dead. And all three are doing it for the same reason. The reason when Jesus comes unmediated into a person's life that they would turn him aside is because he is a threat. Jesus is a threat to every rival kingdom. If his kingdom is what he says it is, no other kingdom will stand in its place. The kingdom of Satan will be toppled. The kingdoms of man will have to fall in place under, in the right order underneath this, and everything unrighteous in their foundations will be shaken. 
And each one of us will find that part of us that would want to assert and draw our identity and who we are and what we need to do apart from Christ will be shaken. So when we stare at Jesus, we see someone who is a threat to each of those kingdoms. And that's why those kingdoms got together and figured out a way to kill Jesus. My question is, what do we do with this? And this is where, um, honestly, I'm really bad at application. I'm sure Terry's already got something for you. I'll get to you in a second. But um, I mean, to some extent, this is just something we need to recognize. We need to see that all three of these layers are aligned against Jesus. A failure to do so will cause us to misunderstand what ails this earth. And there's a temptation. We all, generally speaking, tend to tilt towards one of the explanations. There are those who see Satan behind every bush and a demon under every rock. And everything becomes about tossing down the powers and praying this out. And you can lose sight of the real human societal issues that exist that, Honestly, Satan can be cast out and still maintain themselves pretty well. We do a fine job of sinning by ourselves. And then the individual root of sin within each person's heart. Or we could just focus in on the societal issue. And taken to its extreme, the gospel becomes something that is almost purely on horizontal level. The demonic powers that influence things are forgotten and the root of sin in man can become overlooked. Though they might, you might not say that man is not sinful, he can become pretty okay with a few cracks. And the gospel can become about God, Jesus just coming to identify with the oppressed and break the earthly powers. Or it can simply focus on the personal enmity we have with God. And, I mean, this would be, if I am going to tilt accidentally to one extreme, this would be my, my camp. I come from a, I'm largely conservative in my theology, and this tends to be where you get in America with that mindset, where it becomes simply about my individual sin, where it becomes about the sin that lies in each person's individual atomistic heart out there where systematic things and demonic forces are looked on with suspicion. It's a mindset that can end you up with something where it becomes, it's not a racism issue, it's a sin issue, which is true at one level. That is sin coming to fruit. But it ignores the fact, the biblical testimony that we live within systems that humans have built. We live within cultures, we live within an arrangement that have been built on top of our sins. It's true in the sense that if you don't deal with the heart of sin, it can be just become about mowing away weeds, and then as soon as you're done, they sprout right back up. But if you, but if you ignore the fact that there are societal-level issues here, you miss the fact that society shapes who we are. It affects who we are. It is easier to be... The biblical testimony would be it's easier to be a righteous person in a righteous culture. And in a wicked culture, it's easily to be shaped that way. There's a self-replicating circle there where individual sin builds into a sinful culture, which makes it easier to be sinful. So we need to be aware that it's at all three levels. 
We need to be aware that there are demonic powers. We need to be aware that there are systematic things. And we need to be aware that there's individual sin. We need to be aware at the individual level that a consumeristic, individualistic, libertarian culture might not be the best thing for personal piety. We have to be aware of this or else we have our guard let down in certain spots. And as a church, we need to be aware of all of these things as well because we can't afford to simply focus on one. We do a bad job of ministering to each other and we'll do a bad job of testifying to the world about what's going on. Secondly, failing to see this also if we don't see why they killed Jesus, we don't see how he was a threat, and we will miss how our message is also a threat. As I said, there is a great deal of truth in the idea that the problem people have with Christianity as Christians, we are self-righteous, we are sinful, we are lousy testimonies to Jesus very often. But we also often are very mute testimonies. It is possible for us to present Jesus in a very clear way and actually get a more angry reaction than just for being self-righteous. And we need to be aware of that, and we need to be prepared for that. There's a story in Acts 19 that kind of sums up the testimony. Jesus is now dead, raised, ascended, and this is his church going forward with a message. And in Ephesus, there's been great success. The church is actually having an impact. It's having such an impact that it's affecting the local silver trade and the other craftsmen who make the shrines for the idols. So we see here the effect on all three levels of this message happening. It's gone to a city Jesus never arrived at, and it has impacted personal sin, which has caused people to stop worshiping idols, which has affected the societal system that supported the whole thing. And the response is the people who support this issue um, and they cause a riot and drag a couple of Christians out in the square. And fortunately, people step in and calm things down, but they were ready to go. They wanted this Christianity that was turning the world upside down to be cast out. So we need to be aware that there will be resistance. And third, and Terry will touch on this in much greater depth next week, understanding the forces that were aligned against Jesus, understanding who came to kill him and why, helps us to better appreciate what he overcame. Satan came and threw his best throw. He got the Messiah nailed up on a cross where he would be cursed. The societal powers gave it their best go. They had a person who came preaching forgiveness and life, and they used their greatest threat, death, and they brought him down. And all of our individual sin, everyone individually aligned with that, saw a person who came to their individual vineyard and said, this is the son. If I cast him out, I'll be free. And that little thing in our hearts managed to be done with him. That's where things were left on Friday. But Sunday morning happens, and we see that though Satan had the him nailed to the cross as a curse, what we actually see is the curse goes into the grave and he rises free from it. And we too can follow him there. And Satan's power over humanity is broken. We see the societal powers using death to control. And we see 
a person taken to death. To fo- he's following God to the degree that he's taken to death. They pull everything they have. That is their greatest weapon. And it can't stop him, nor can it stop us. And we see the little sin within our heart, that part of each one of us that would rise up and take that hammer and nail Jesus to the cross if we were there. And we find that he has placed the Holy Spirit within each one of us. There is something in our hearts that would kick Jesus out and have full reign, our fleshly nature, but he has placed a spirit within us, a spirit of holiness a spirit that will grow and will burn away all the wickedness within us, that will transform us in this life through sanctification, and that we will see a day when we will be completely free from that sin. There will be a day when our true instinct in all that we are is to follow Jesus with everything. We will finally be free of all the sin, every division in our heart we put away. That's what we see in this. We see these powers against Jesus. And seeing that, we understand better what ails the world. We understand why it still resists, and we see why our message is a threat to it. And we see the hope and the power of what Jesus overcame. Amen.